At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, finding your Christmas story in theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. You know, there's something powerful about having the opportunity to see an event with your own eyes. A couple weekends ago, my wife and I got the privilege to go to the Ohio State-Michigan game in, uh, in Ann Arbor and to witness that, we'll call it historic event for you Michigan fans, right? So if you, if you don't know me, I'm from Ohio, so give me some grace, right? But we got to go with some friends, and we got to experience. And it, it was an awesome experience. I keep telling everyone, I got to see the big house in all its glory. I don't think you'll ever quite see it the same way as I did uh, in that moment and that time. And, and afterwards, you know, as people found out that we had gone to the game, we got a lot of questions of what was it like? What, what was the atmosphere like? What did you do, right? And even people that watched the game, even people that had experienced it still kind of wanted to know what was it like to actually be there? Because there was something powerful to actually just witnessing in person that you can't catch on TV, the atmosphere, the feelings, the sensations, all of that. There's something about being at a live event and seeing it that's really incredible. And one of the things, though, that was also kind of a joy of that game was having the opportunity to kind of see it through the eyes of someone else. Right, obviously, I'm an Ohio State fan, so I wasn't super thrilled with the outcome. But about midway through the third quarter into the fourth quarter, I realized the game was over, that Michigan had this, their lines were dominating us, we didn't have a chance. And luckily, I got to go to the game with some good friends who are huge Michigan fans, and they were all for it. And to sit next to them and begin through that time to kind of see the game through their eyes, to see the joy around me, even though I was sad my team lost, right, I was still able to kind of gain from their experience, to be able to see it through their eyes informed my reality as well. Seeing something informs our reality, bearing witness, experiencing it firsthand, but also seeing things through other people's eyes and other people's shoes often can broaden our perspective and help our, inform our reality as well. Today, we want to look at the Christmas event through a certain set of eyes. In fact, that's what we've been doing throughout this entire series, is going back and saying, what was it like for the first people that experienced the reality of Jesus' arrival on the earth and his birth? And we've kind of been taking different glances to kind of see and let their eyes inform our reality, to shape what they witnessed, informed how we see and understand what it means that Jesus has come. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at the message of the angels and what they proclaimed, the peace that they proclaimed. Last week, we looked at the reality of Joseph. But today, we want to look through the eyes of some pretty unlikely people to, who experienced that first Christmas. I want to look through the eyes for a little bit today of the shepherds. So you kind of saw them introduced right away in the first part of our passage. Look back at it with me. It says, and in the same region, the region where Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
Now, if we're to see kind of what this means through their eyes, it's good for us to understand a little bit about the reality of shepherding in the first century when Jesus was born. Oftentimes, when we think of shepherds, some people have played up the reality that maybe they were despised. But what we really know is that when it came to shepherds, they were kind of the low, insignificant workers of the day. They had a pretty rough job. Their job was to tend sheep. And so they would spend their days guiding the sheep to fields where they could feed and make sure that they had what they wanted. And then at night, they would gather the flocks and they would keep watch over them to make sure that they were not stolen or that no predator would attack. It was not a glorious job. It was a pretty low-class job in Jesus's day. In fact, most of the job required them to live outdoors a good chunk of the time. It was a marginal, maybe uncomfortable life at best, said one commentator. Shepherds, in our reality, would be your third shift blue-collar workers at the plant. They'd be the person managing the hotel desk at 3 a.m. or the people out on the highway doing construction overnight because apparently we need construction 24-7 in Michigan to fix these roads. <laughs> so, but that's who they would be, right? They're the ones people often overlook, They're not working nine to five. They're working 11 to seven. They're up overnight. And so they're just out in their fields, working their job, doing what they got to do. Just another night out in the fields, grinding, pushing, trying to make enough ends meet for their families. But then suddenly something happens and everything changes. Look at verse nine. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, this is a pretty dramatic and significant moment, right? Angels are spiritual beings that are messengers of God, often sent to interact with our world. And an angel shows up to these shepherds while they're just working their job on the line, doing their thing. The text gives the idea that he appeared over them. There was a suddenness to his arrival. And the sudden arrival of this this angel changes everything for the shepherds. And it begins to invite them into the story to see something that I anticipate they that night, they never anticipated to see. In some ways, the story of these shepherds is familiar. It's documented even within our kind of Christmas tradition. The passage I just read for you is famously read by Linus in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Many of us have heard it time and time again. But I want for a few minutes to kind of move away from the familiar And to look at these stories of these kind of average guys and what they experience. And I want to look through their eyes and let it inform what we see when we look at the story of the birth of Jesus. Three things I want you to encourage you to see through the eyes of the shepherd today. The first thing that we see comes right away when the angel shows up. Look at nine. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The first thing that these shepherds encounter as the angel comes to them is they see the glory of God. This phrase, the glory of the Lord, is a technical phrase referencing the Shekinah glory, or another way you would put it, the manifest presence of God's glory. That God shows up in the reality of this angel and makes his presence known to these shepherds. 
God's glory often shows up in major events when God is about to do something big. In fact, if you look back through the story of Israel and from the story of creation, we see God's manifest presence, his glory showing up in some major events. God's glory comes in creation. We see it when God shows up at Sinai and gives his covenant to Israel. We see God's glory show up to Paul on the road to Damascus or in the transfiguration of Jesus. Oftentimes it comes to announce the significant event that God's about to do in the world and in history. And it comes by God manifesting the weight of who he is. God's glory is startling and striking when it comes. And we see that for these shepherds. They are filled with fear. To experience the weight of God's glory, to feel the reality of who he is, is to be struck with awe. It's to stand back and say, whoa, something big, something magnificent beyond my comprehension is here. Sometimes I think we have this idea, like I'll I'll, I'll hear people say like, well, I would love to ask God when I get to heaven. And I'm like, listen, when we get to heaven, I'm not going to ask God anything. Like I'm going to be flat on my face. And when you see the scriptures, everyone who encounters the glory of God is so struck, they're filled with fear and they usually are falling flat on their face. My uncle used to tell me years ago that if we really truly experience the glory of God, in his full presence, we would have all have broken noses because we would just fall face down. And that's what happens to these shepherds. They see the glory of God in this angel manifest them and they're struck with fear. They also see God's glory come in another way. Jump down to verse 13. We're going to come back and explore 10 and through 12 in a minute, but look at verse 13. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So if it isn't bad enough that they see the glory of God, they're struck with fear. God amplifies that by bringing a multitude of angels to come and proclaim his glory to these shepherds. Now, we explored this phrase a few weeks ago, so I won't go too deep into it, but just a simple reminder that when we're talking about a multitude of the heavenly hosts, we're not talking about a choir of angels. Those two words that are used there in the Greek, plethos meaning many and stratia meaning a military unit, that's the term, really is the idea that what is being presented is the armies of heaven. A multitude of an army of angels. One commentary said, commentator said it this way. This army is huge, regimented, and marshaled for the praise and purposes of God. That's what's being shown here. And if they weren't trembling before, they're certainly trembling now. And what is this army of angels gathered to do? To proclaim. And what are they proclaiming? Simple glory to God in the highest place and on earth peace. The phrase here is beautiful and balanced. This idea of glory, meaning to ascend the highest or the most praise towards, is given to God in the highest of heavens, in the farthest reaches of reality. His glory is proclaimed by these angels. And yet this glory is such that as it comes to earth, it brings peace, flourishing, Shalom to those on whom God's favor would rest. In many ways, what the angels are proclaiming here is what is promised in the Old Testament. 
In passages like Isaiah 11, where it says that a root will come from the stump of Jesse, that God's going to bring a king. And when that king comes and begins to establish God's kingdom, Isaiah 11:9 reminds us that the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. I don't know about you, but I think the water does a pretty good job of covering the sea, doesn't it? And that the vision of God is that his world will be brought in to his relationship in such a way that his glory would fill all in all. That it would become the dominant reality and the proclamation of these angels is that that glory, the glory that belongs to God in the highest places and reaches to the lowest places of earth is arriving now in this baby that is being born. It's the glory of God that our hearts long for and desire. We were created by God, made for his purposes, to behold his glory that reflects who he is out into the world. This was the great purpose of human beings. And yet we turned from God's glory and turned inwards. And it's why so many of us struggle to find our purpose, to find peace, to find harmony in the world. And yet what's proclaimed to these shepherds is God is in the midst of bringing his glory back to restore us, to see once again the goodness of his glory in our lives. And the invitation of the shepherds is to stop looking at ourselves and start to see the glory of God as the great purpose and reality of our lives. Pastor John Piper says this about the reality of our hearts longing for God's glory. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on a speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It's a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world. And the call and reality of the shepherds is they invite us to look past ourselves because we will never find what our hearts long for there and to see in God the glorious purpose of our lives, that he is the center of all things and we must behold his glory. How do we do that? We do it in Jesus. The author of Hebrews reminds us that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. To see Christ is to see God's glory. To see Christ revealed through his word is to see God's glory. It's to find what we were created for. And the shepherds invite us this season to once again see the glory of God, and to be awestruck by who he is. The second thing they invite us to see is not only the glory of God, but also the humility of God. Look at the message that the angel brings in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for I behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the angel shows up and he says, listen, I've got a message for you. It's a good message. It's good news. And not only is it good news, it's good news that brings incredible joy. And not just for you, for everyone. 
What's this good news that they bring? Verse 11, for to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, this is a key phrase in what the angels are proclaiming about the reality of Jesus. In fact, these three phrases that we find here, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, only appear in the New Testament in this text and one other place in Philippians. They're titles given to the reality of who Jesus is and what he means for the world. First, that he is, in fact, the Savior. This idea from the Old Testament is the idea of one that would come to deliver God's people from their enemies, both spiritual and physical. And what the angel is proclaiming is that Jesus is come to be the Savior, the Deliverer, but not only for the Jews, for all people to rescue us from the things that keep us from God's intention and his world, to keep us from the purposes from which we are created for, to save us from the enemies, not only external, but internal by our own sinfulness. And they pair that with the title that he is Christ and Lord. That term Christ is the idea of the anointed one. In the Old Testament, it's the word Messiah, that God was going to send one anointed in the line of David who was going to be Lord or king to establish God's kingdom. And what is proclaimed by the reality of these angels is that this baby is in fact, this one who has arrived is in fact Savior Christ and Lord. God's promised messianic king is here. God is going to fulfill his promises and establish his eternal kingdom. But these terms not only mean God's going to fulfill what he promised in the Old Testament, they also are used to stand in contrast to the claims of rival kingdoms to God's true kingdom. In fact, these terms that are found here were used of Caesar throughout the Roman Empire, that he was Savior, that he in fact was Lord, that he brought peace on the earth through his empire and military might. And yet, the proclamation over this child is that Jesus is actually the one who does that. Joel Green says in his commentary, Jesus' birth calls into question both the emperor's status as savior and the peace of Augustus that gave rise to that acclaimed status. Jesus comes to say, I'm fulfilling the Old Testament and I'm establishing a kingdom that no other kingdom can stand against. And so here we have God's divine announcement. An angel shows up to proclaim the Savior is here. He is being born. But how does he come? How would you expect God's messianic king to come? I'm sure we would expect it to come with fanfare, with announcements to be declared everywhere. We know this. When royal babies are born, you don't keep that information in the dark. I mean, we see that even today, right? Like, Harry and Meghan are going to have another baby who's like 12th from the throne, and yet it's like on every headline and every article all over the place. When babies who are supposed to be kings show up, generally people pay attention. But Jesus comes in a different way. Look what the angel says. This will be a sign for you. What's a sign? Something that points to something greater, right? That points you towards that. This is going to be the sign for you of who this baby is and what he comes to bring. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You see, Jesus doesn't come with fanfare. He comes in simplicity. In fact, he comes in a pretty unique way. We see the response 
of the shepherds in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The sign that the angels proclaimed, they now see. But what is that sign? Like, what did the shepherds actually see when they come to find Jesus? And this is where, for a moment, I want to take a step back, because I think we have all sorts of kind of Christmas traditions that have built up of, like, what that event was like. I think, think many times in our kind of culture, we have this idea that, like, Mary and Joseph rode into a donkey, into Bethlehem, at, like, the last second, they found, like, the one inn that they could, they knocked on the door, the innkeeper was like, sorry, I don't have any room, but I've got a barn out back if you want to go have the baby there, and she was in labor, and they didn't have a choice, and they just went in there and had the baby. That's not what happened, just so we're clear. So let me help you understand a little bit of the context and what's actually taking place and what the shepherds would have experienced that night when they came to find Jesus. So I'm going to show you a picture. In uh, Jesus' day, ancient Israelite homes in that day would have been constructed in a certain way. They would have either been one story or many of them were built with two stories. And oftentimes, either one section of the first story or as in the diagram on the screen, the lower section would have been reserved for the animals that people would have owned. Animals were your source of income. They provided for your family. And so you would not have left your animals out at night to be unprotected. And so oftentimes what would happen is you would bring your animals in at night, both to protect them and to help with the warmth of the house. And they either would have been put on a lower floor in a house like this, or if it was a one-story floor, there would have been a section kind of lowered where the animals would have stayed. Now, oftentimes you would have then had a main living area where the family did all their things together, cooking, sleeping, whatever. And then you would have a either separate section of the house that was known as your guest room that you could provide hospitality in that day because that was a big deal. Now, when we say in the New Testament that there was no room for them in the inn, which you're actually going to find in verse 7 of Luke chapter 2, we hearken up the idea of a hotel with a no vacancy sign. The word that's translated in in our New Testament is actually the word that's used for the guest room of an ancient Israelite house. Luke actually uses that same word in Luke 22 where Jesus is looking for a place to have his last meal within his disciples. And he says, go find me, find this man and ask him if I can use his room. What we call the upper room is the same word for guest room. It was that separate section of the house that was likely on the second floor. So when it says that Jesus, there was no room for them in the inn, what it means is that Mary and Joseph likely came to Bethlehem to some sort of family member, but it was so crowded from the census that there was no room for them to stay in the guest room. So where else are they going to stay? Well, they're going to stay where the animals are. That's the only other option. And that ultimately the sign that the shepherds are going to see is that in that place, they would have had a manger, either a dugout part of the floor where they would have put hay to feed the animals, or some houses would have built wooden troughs that those babies, or I'm sorry, that those animals would have been fed in. And so the sign of the manger is you're going to go, you're going to find this kid. He's been born where the animals are stayed and he's placed in the place where they're fed. And he's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths, which would have been strips of cloths that the average person would have used to kind of wrap their baby up to help protect them and keep them warm. So when the shepherds come to find the king of all kings, God's promised messianic one, what they show up to is the most unspectacular birth. In an average home where the animals stayed, 
And this baby's put in the feeding trough. And yet, I think in that we see the incredible humility of God in how he shows up. One commentator says of the shepherds that they would find the Christ child in an ordinary peasant home such as theirs. You see, they would have been expectant that God was going to show up somewhere else, some other thing. But where did he show up? And he showed up to the third shift worker's small home in their garage, set on the workbench. Like they expected him to find somewhere else. And what they found was that he showed up in the most ordinary, unexpected place. See, I think one of the things that we have to recognize in Jesus' coming and the great mystery that we celebrate at Christmas is not just the fact that divinity, God himself, would unite with humanity in the mystery of the Son of God that is Jesus, which is an incredible reality and truth. That God would condescend, he would lower himself enough to take on the form of humanity and become one of us. That's an incredible fact alone. But even more than that, that he would lower himself not to the best of humanity, but to the lowest places. To the most average people. You see, to see the humility of God is to see that Jesus comes to those that are low on the social totem pole. That are unexpected that are the least likely to receive the announcement of the king and to find that king in an ordinary home like theirs. But when you see the humility of God, what you begin to realize is that God has truly come for us. Right? That's what the angel says. For to you, shepherds, is born this day. And if you're a shepherd, you're like, I don't know how this guy's born to me. But then you show up in a house that looks somewhat like yours. And you find that kid in the animal room. You think, oh, maybe this baby is for me. Maybe this king's actually for the least of these. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, man, there's no way God's going to show up in my life. I'm too far. I'm too low. I'm too broken. I'm too strung out. I'm too whatever. To see the humility of God is to recognize that God comes to the lowest and the least. That that's the place that he shows up. That Jesus is, in fact, for everyone. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which is probably the best book I read this year. So if you want a good book recommendation, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland is a good one. But it explores the character and reality of Christ when he says, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. It says this, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. He's here for you. And he's not looking at you saying, if you get to this point, no, he's ready to show up in the lowest of places. Finally, the last thing we see that these shepherds see is not only the glory of God and the humility of God, but they see and experience the good news of God that is found in Jesus. They actually receive this good news, and when they see Jesus, they see him as the good news, and it completely changes their experience. 
Look what it says in verse 17. And when they saw it, when they saw the fulfillment of the sign, when they saw the reality of Christ, when they realized the actual king, the Messiah, the Lord of all is here, what did they do? They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. You see, we know that the Shepherds saw good news because they become witnesses to good news. When you experience something that's magnificent and awe-inspiring, that's incredible, we naturally as people want to then go tell other people to invite them into what we've seen. This is our natural gut reaction, right? I see this in my house every Sunday. It's NFL season. We're big NFL fans. I love football. Actually, my friends were making fun of me this week. They're like, use a lot of football illustrations. I'm like, I know. I just love football. Bear with me if you're not a football fan, right? But my oldest son, Isaiah, he's loving football right alongside me. And he's like in that phase. He he cannot get enough NFL football. He's like, can we watch the one o'clock game and the four o'clock game and the eight o'clock game and the Monday night game and the Thursday night game, right? Like he's football all the time. Already this morning, he was like, this afternoon, we're just watching red zone. The whole afternoon. I was like, okay, we'll probably do something else, but that's fine. And oftentimes what will happen in my house is, you know, he's watching football or doing whatever. I might be in another room. My wife might be in another room doing something. And my son will come bounding into the room with all his energy. And he's like, dad, you got to come watch us play. You got to see this, right? You you got to, it was incredible. I can't believe this happened. You know, or maybe his fantasy football player scored a touchdown, whatever it is. Like he's, he's pumped and he's like, you got to come. And usually I'm in the middle of something. I'm like, I've, I've seen touchdowns before. Like I'm good. Right. But ladies, no, you, you got to see this. It's awesome. And so I go in and we watch it. We have this great moment. We love football, but I'm reminded through that. Like when we experience something that's exciting, that enlivens our heart, even something simple, like a football touchdown, we want to draw someone else in, come and see this. This is awesome. And that's the response of these shepherds. They recognize who Jesus is and they can't help themselves. They're like, you got to see this. Like the Messiah's here. That one that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, he showed up and the sign these angels gave, it actually came true. Like God's here. He's fulfilling his promises. And they want everyone to know. And what is it they want them to know? They want them to know that Jesus is good news for everyone. That what was shown to them wasn't just for them. It was for every person. That this child has come to save us from ourselves and our sin and our brokenness. That he's the true king to establish God's true kingdom. That this good news that could come to your average blue-collar shepherd could certainly be for everybody. And that's the reality of what these shepherds saw. To see God's glory, to see his humility, and to see the real good news of Jesus. That he is God's promised one, sent to bear the sins of God's people. To take our wrongs, our guilt, our shame upon himself. Because that baby born would one day go to the cross to pay for those sins. Our consequence of death, he would take So we might be set free and we might experience a restored relationship with God. And he wouldn't only stay dead. Three days later, he would rise again to announce God's kingdom is here and everyone can enter in. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter your starting point. 
by just simply trusting in me like these shepherds so faithfully did, you can begin to experience new life in Jesus. And you can be part of God's kingdom now that will carry on into eternity. That there is new and eternal life available for you in the person of Jesus. And it doesn't matter where you're starting from. The good news of Jesus is for everybody. The question becomes, how are we going to respond to the reality that that Savior, that Messiah King is here? In the text, we actually see three responses that come to the announcement and the reality of what the shepherds make known. You see the first one in verse 18. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Sometimes the starting point to receive the good news that Jesus is for everyone and the salvation he brings is simply to start with wonder, to begin to ask the questions, what does this mean if this is true, if this is real, if that he really is the king who died and rose again? Sometimes the journey of faith just begins with wondering by allowing yourself to to question and to think. The second response we see, though, in Jesus' mother in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The step from wonder to ponder is to dwell, to think, to begin to have the place of trust, to say, I see this child differently. It might be an inkling, it might be a step, but to ponder is where the steps and seeds of faith are born. But the shepherd response is my favorite. These lowly men who experienced the glory and humility and good news of God. Look at 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You see, they saw it. They were there. And because of that, they turned to praise to see Jesus in the reality of who he is, the promise anointed king. And to truly trust that results ultimately in a life that says, how do I glorify and praise God because of what I have seen and heard? This week, we're going to gather on Thursday and Friday to do these things, to wonder together, to ponder together, and to praise God together that Jesus has come as the Savior and Lord of all. And we hope you join us for that. But the place I want to leave us today is by simply asking you this question as you enter this week. What does God want you to see today? Maybe for some of you, you need to see afresh the glory of God. Maybe you need to see that God's purposes are bigger than just you that he is in fact God and Lord over all, that his glory is from eternity past to forever in the future, that everything is about him. And maybe you need to see today to take your eyes off yourself and to lift them towards the King of Kings and see his majesty afresh. Or maybe some of you today need to see the humility of God you need to be reminded that God comes for you no matter where you're at and no matter what you've done. If he could show up in an ordinary house, he can certainly show up in your life no matter where you find yourself this morning.
He's the sort of God that lowers himself to that place. He loves you that much. And maybe some of you need to see that Jesus is the good news for everyone. Maybe you're in that place, man, where you're questioning, you're wondering, you've been pondering for a while. And what the angel or what the shepherds proclaim to us today and remind us of is that Jesus is the savior your heart longs for. He is the true king that you were created to follow. And that when you trust in him and submit your life to him, you will find the life that you were designed for, both in part now and for eternity. Because Jesus really is good news. And if you've experienced that good news of Jesus this morning, we just give me a little hand clap and say, yes, Jesus is the good news for everyone. But at the end of the day, my prayer for all of us is that as we see God this Christmas, that it would result in a life like these shepherds that worships God and that bears witness to who he is in the world. May that be true of all of us. Let me pray for us. God, we stand in awe in this moment of the reality of what you have done. Jesus, that you would leave the glory of heaven to come down to the lowliness of earth. And not only that, to come to the lowest places. That you who deserved all glory and fanfare, you who angels will gather around in eternity to declare blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever, you who are the greatest of all would become the least for us. Leaves us amazed. And God, today I just want to give you the praise and glory that you would do that for us, to save us, to bring us into your eternal kingdom. God, as we enter this season of Christmas and this week, I pray that you would open our eyes, even today, to see afresh the reality of Christ, to see what he has done for us, to see his glory and his humility, to see the joy he brings, that he is in fact the good news and that it would continue to leave us changed. That as we see Christ, we would respond by bowing the knee in worship and saying, you, Jesus, deserve all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And that as we experience the good news of the gospel afresh, that it would lead us to be the sort of people that can't help like these shepherds, but to go to the world around us and say, Jesus really is the thing your heart longs for, and he's here for you. That we would be proclaimers of the good news of God in all the spaces you call us. So even now, as we prepare to respond in worship, as we prepare to hear this song, I pray that you would use it as a way to call us back into that place, to call us to fresh eyes, to fresh vision, to fresh hearts of trust and faith in Christ. Holy Spirit, we need you to do that in us. So we invite you to come and do that now as we respond. And we ask in the powerful and good name of Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.